Well, Kezia, thank you for introducing me. My name is Phil, not the tall Phil, the handsome one. I'm the short, stocky one, Phil too. Um, I'm a retired minister. This is what you do in your retirement. <laughs> and um, I thank uh, Sin and, the, and the, uh, the core committee for giving me this option to, uh, option to come along, this opportunity, and preach to you today on the Big Picture series. So I think last um, Sunday, if you were here, you would have heard Phil Campbell preaching to you about creation. And today we move to the topic of the fall. So before I start, uh, would you please join me in prayer? Let us pray. Heavenly Father, as we come now to consider this portion of your inspired word, may you through your Holy Spirit seal on our hearts the divine truths about you and about us that you would have us know. Give us ears to hear, minds to understand, hearts to love and hearts to trust you and wills to obey and follow our Lord and Saviour Jesus the Christ in whose name we pray. First of all, the reading from Scripture. Um, we are reading from the first book of the Bible, Genesis, um, some segments from chapter 2, and then chapter, the whole of chapter 3. So hear the word of God. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground, then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground, the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And now from verse 15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And now from chapter three. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good from evil. 
So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to me to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me and I ate. The Lord God said, to the serpent. Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Then cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim with a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Amen, and thanks be to God. What is wrong with the world? 
That's a question I think we all ask ourselves from time to time. Look around you, Russia invades Ukraine and carries out attacks on civilians. Gunmen mow down people in churches and mosques and dance halls and schools and shopping malls. Waste plastic clogs the oceans and many of the world's waterways in ecological disaster. Politicians put point scoring and encouraging division over finding common ground to pursue the common good. Domestic violence, the sexual abuse of children and violence and mistreatment of women. More than any other known life form on this beautiful planet, human beings are the most destructive, the most selfish and the most powerful. Power to do great good, but also power to inflict inflict great evil on each other and on other species of life and indeed on the planet itself. So what is wrong with the world? Nearly 100 years ago, the very distinguished newspaper, The Times of London, posed that question to its readers and invited them to respond with their answers. All sorts of answers were given, but one man's answer was the shortest of them all. The man was G.K. Chesterton. You might know him as the author of the Father Brown detective novels that have more recently run on television, on the ABC, several series of them. What's wrong with the world? Chesterton simply wrote, I am. What Chesterton meant was that we humans are the problem. We are what's wrong with the world, not just out-and-out criminals and warmongers, not just the shamelessly greedy billionaires who think it's okay to rape and pillage the planet, but each one of us. What's wrong with the world? You and me. That's what's wrong with the world. So what's wrong with us? Why are we the problem? It's because of a thing that we're all born with, a thing that the Bible calls sin. Long ago, the Apostle Paul put it bluntly in his letter to the Romans. He said, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. No ifs, no buts, all have sinned. All of us, even children, can that be right? When I was in training for ministry, a group of us discussed with this wise old elder that particular question. Even children? And his answer was a simple question. He turned to us and he said, does any of you have to teach your child to be naughty? Okay, so what's wrong with the world is us. And what's wrong with us is sin. And sin is, you can think of it as a congenital, deadly disease that we're all born with. It's like the built-in bias 
Here we go. Do you know what they are? They're the balls that are used in a, in a sport called lawn bowls. You know about lawn bowls? Actually, they say that's the most dangerous uh, sport in the world. More people die on the bowling green than in any other sport. Nothing to do with the fact that they're in their 80s and 90s. And <laughs> okay, but that's what it's like. You see, those balls um, have a built-in bias in them so that if you actually bowl them in a straight line, they just won't go in a straight line. They go off to the side. They go off the straight and narrow. So that's basically how we are. So the obvious question is, how does this come about? Well, that's a question that all cultures and all religions and all skills of schools of philosophy have grappled with for thousands of years and many explanations have been offered. But for Christians, it's the Bible's explanation that makes the most sense and also gives us the most hope of a better future. See, right at the beginning of the Bible, in the book of Genesis, well, there are two creation stories and it's the second story found in chapters two and three that describes what theologians call the fall. Not the American version of autumn, but the fall of humanity into separation from and rebellion against our creator God. It's a story of God fashioning a man out of dust, breathing life into his nostrils, planting a garden for him to look after, but warning him not to eat from one particular tree or he would die in that day. It's a story of a talking snake who sows the seed of doubt into the woman's mind, resulting in her and the man eating what they were warned not to. But they don't die on the spot. When God finds out, he curses the snake, the man, and the woman, expels them from the garden and posts a cherub with a flaming sword at the entrance to stop anyone reaching the other special tree that's there, the tree of life. Now, to most people's modern ears, this is quite a bizarre and frankly unbelievable story. There are indeed Christians who do take this story very, very literally, as if it's a modern scientific and historical account of actual events exactly the way they're told. You may be one of them. But be aware that there are other faithful Christians who see it more like an allegory or a parable told to an ancient people in terms of their ancient culture in a way they would readily understand. In much the same way as Jesus used parables to help us glimpse truths about the kingdom of God. So however you see it, let's not get hung up on the plausibility or the specific detail of this story. Rather, let's see if we can work out what God is telling us about himself and about us through this story. So what does the Garden of Eden story tell us? Well, I think it tells us at least 
five divine truths. And that's what I want to address now. Firstly, it tells us that God's intentions and desires for us as his creatures created in his image have always been good. We read, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. See, working in and with our natural environment, that's what we're supposed to do. And in doing so, we are to experience life to the full. That was the plan. You shall surely eat of every tree of the garden, the Lord says. So here's the first truth. God's intentions for humanity are and always were good. Secondly, the story of the garden tells us that the one thing that we are to avoid was setting ourselves up as our own gods, making up our own rules of right and wrong. If we were to make our own desires and our own will supreme, we would automatically lose our spiritual communion with the one who truly is supreme. In effect, we would go from spiritual life, the spiritual life that God's given us with himself, to the spiritual death of separation from fellowship with God. So in verse 17 we read, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that's what symbolises that issue, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day you shall eat of it, you shall surely die. See, the danger in being made in God's image is the temptation to see the image, that is ourselves, as the ultimate reality. And so turn our back on the source of all reality. Now thirdly, the garden The story of the garden tells us that humanity did take that fatal step. As a species, our desires have ruled us and overridden our capacity to trust in our creator and sustainer God. You see that in verse six. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, that is, to give insight. She took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Now notice what happens next in the story. Now remember that God had said in verse 17 of chapter 2, In the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. But when they do eat the forbidden fruit, they do not drop dead on the spot. If they did, there would be no humanity, presumably. So the story is not talking about our physical death. What happens next is the eyes of both were opened. That's what verse 7 says. And then... The man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of God. Which is a bit like trying to hide yourself from your own shadow when you think about it. 
they have become spiritually dead, hiding and running from God, who is the source of life itself. And this then symbolises what's become our natural born human condition, our default setting. It's how we are hardwired. We are born with our personal desires in the driver's seat, separated from conscious, continuous union with our creator. And this is what turns the world upside down. This is the reason for man's inhumanity to man and our trashing of the planet that we're supposed to be caring for. Instead of being good stewards, we're more like vandals. Instead of loving people and using things, we love things and use people. We have decided that what suits us is good and what doesn't suit us is evil. This is our corrupt knowledge of good and evil. So fourthly, the story of the garden tells us that we live not just in a material world, but that we're in the midst of an unseen spiritual world. The spiritual world, which is just as much part of God's creation as the material world, includes both good and evil. In particular, there is an entity, a spirit of evil, that seeks the destruction of our relationship with God. In Genesis chapter 3, this spiritual force is depicted as a serpent. In verse 1, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. Now elsewhere in scripture, this spirit of evil is called Satan, which in Hebrew means the accuser. Beelzebub, the dragon, the devil, the prince of demons, the, the prince of this world, and the prince of the air. These are all titles or descriptions that you can find in different parts of the Bible. And in case there's any doubt that all these terms mean the same thing, the final book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, speaks of it in, in chapter 20, verse 2, as the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil, and Satan, the accuser, or one and the same thing. The spirit of evil represented here as the serpent is described by Jesus in John's Gospel in these words. In chapter 8 of John's Gospel, Jesus says, He was a murderer from the beginning and has nothing to do with the truth because there's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. And here at the beginning of humanity, the serpent whispers lies that supercharge our ancestors' desire for wisdom. And in our over-desire, we believe the lie. Look at verses four and five. The serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, 
knowing good and evil. And so we as a species, through evil temptation, have fallen under the sway of the spirit of evil. And we can see the evidence of this in human folly, human pride, human cruelty, human greed, human heartlessness all around us and within each of us. And that's why Jesus says of us in our unregenerated state in chapter 8 of John's Gospel, you are of your father the devil and your will is to do your father's desires. But fifthly and finally, very importantly, the story of the Garden of Eden tells us that God has not and will not leave us ruled by Satan, wallowing in spiritual death and facing eternal doom. Hear the gospel. The good news of God's salvation is first proclaimed. God tells the serpent in verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. Now the word translated here as offspring is given in older translations as seed, which is its meaning in Hebrew. Importantly, the seed or offspring mentioned here is in the singular. One seed from the woman. One of her offspring. That's what it's talking about. He's talking about the particular seed of the woman, this one descendant will defeat the power of Satan, but at a cost. Also in verse 14, he, he's God speaking to the serpent, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So in summary, the truths that God tells us from this story of the garden are this. Firstly, our Creator loves humanity and seeks our ultimate good. Secondly, failure to believe this severs our spiritual bond with our Creator. And thirdly, this spiritual death is the condition that we are now all born into. In this state, we, and fourthly, in this state, we are under the sway of a spirit of evil. And fifthly, the power of evil will be broken by one man who will be as human as we are, someone who is a seed of the woman. And we know, spoiler alert, but we know who that man is. Let me conclude by posing this question. Are there any benefits in recognising the all-pervading influence of sin in ourselves and the rest of humanity? Well, I think there are. Firstly, self-awareness of our own broken condition. You know, the German Christian leader, a man called Dietrich Bonhoeffer, you may have heard of him, he was able to write from a Nazi prison not long before he was 
strung up and strangled to death with piano wire just a few days before the war ended, he was able to write this. Nothing that we despise in the other man is entirely absent from ourselves. Imagine the insight and the insight into our reality to write something like that from such a horrible place of terror. Melbourne-based theologian Christopher Watkin argues that there are actually collateral benefits in recognising sin's universality. He wrote, he wrote this, in actively, it actively sub, subverts, recognising that we're all sinners, actively subverts social hierarchies based on the inherently superior worth of some individuals over others. To believe that everyone is a sinner, he says, is to believe that in one very important sense, everyone is equal and equally in need of God's grace. Everyone. And though the atheist cultural warriors may not admit it, our modern concepts of equality and democracy make sense because of original sin. According to Watkin, if we recognise and take to heart the universality of sin, it does two things. Firstly, it unites us with the rest of humanity. It's a social glue. We are literally all in the same boat. No one is excluded. And secondly, it's a force, he says, of social subversion, insisting that if we strip away riches, intelligence, family upbringing, guile, good fortune, and the circumstances of one's birth, then all humans are equal before God in the fundamentally important respect of coming to him as sinners guilty before their creator. Now, by contrast, for a view of the world such as the atheists try and put forward, for a view of the world for which there is nothing deeper than those secondary qualities of upbringing and class and circumstance, if there's nothing deeper than that, then a robust notion of equality is actually much harder to come by. What's the basis for it? Another theologian, a guy called Reinhold Niebuhr, argued that the mixed good and evil that's within all of us has far-reaching political implications. He said this, he said, man's capacity for justice, the good within us, man's capacity for justice makes democracy possible. But man's inclination to injustice, our sin and our selfishness, well, that makes democracy necessary. Think about that. We do indeed live in, a, live in a fallen world, but we live with the promise that in the end, God will put everything right. And next week, Christian Terza will explore how it's possible that even sinners like us might know the comfort of redemption and the hope that comes through that one man 
that seed of the woman, Jesus. Amen. And thanks be to God.